Scripture reading before tonight's lesson will be from John 13, 21 to 38. John 13, 21 to 38. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will portray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then, leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, Buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give, them, give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, Where am I going? You cannot come. So now I say to you, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Jesus said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly I say to you, the rooster shall not crow three shall not crow till you have denied me three times. you're on for the reading over the next few months, good luck. We're going to read every verse in the upper room. And so that was a great job, actually. Thank you, Carson. I can tell you read in school a little bit. That's good. We're in part two tonight of the series that we're going to be working on for January, February, and March um, entitled Bound Together. And as I mentioned last week, um, one of the things that is just so prominent about the upper room, uh, out of the thousands of ways that we could slice it and dice it and look at it, uh, there are many, many different themes that we could pull out of the conversation and things we could learn from the upper room. But one of the things that is so interesting to me is that after the upper room, the 11 are for life bound together with the man, Jesus Christ. Love him, adore him, cherish him will die for him, no, no doubt about it. Um, one of the things I came across that was kind of interesting not long ago is that nearly 65% of 1 John can be traced back to the text from John 13 to 16. And so John wrote 1 John when he was about 90 years old, and in this place he was probably no more than, younger than 30 probably, and so 60 years later almost, still this event is at the forefront of his mind, this conversation that Jesus has with them. And so we started last week. What we're looking at is how and what took place in this room that bound these guys to Jesus for life. Because I don't just want to have an academic or a theoretical relationship with Christ. I want to have one that is real, which we feel like we know him. So tonight, uh, our text revolves around two pretty famous people 
who on one night turned their backs on Jesus, Judas and Peter. And these guys bookend a middle section here, verses like 31 to about 35, this homily from Jesus, this sermon. Jesus sort of out of nowhere, after Judas leaves, gives us these four verses that can feel a little bit out of the blue. They're like a sermon. He just says, talking about glory and where I'm going, and then he says, a commandment I give you to love one another. It kind of has this you know, sermon on the mount kind of feel to it. And then he comes back to Peter and speaks about Peter's, um, you know, his denial that he's about to go under. And so one of the things that we know from history after we look back is that although these two guys, Judas and Peter, both that night would look the same, one would ultimately return to Jesus and live and die for him and the other would not. And I think that poses a really interesting question for us if we're really trying to figure out how to develop a healthy attachment to the man Jesus Christ. We have to ask ourselves, I guess, this question, why? Why Peter and Judas? What's the difference between them? What what was unique about them and what do we know about them? And so we're going to dig into that tonight um, as we sort of look into these two characters and, and see what sort of took place. What I want to do for us as we try to dig into this text of Scripture is start in the middle. So I want to go to the thing that Jesus said in verses 31 through 35 and start there because there's a reason. What Jesus says in his first statement, verses 31 and 32, reveal for us the problem of Judas. And what Jesus says in verse 34, or 33, 34 and 35 reveal the problem of Peter. Okay, did you get that? Verse 31 and 32, what Jesus says there is going to reveal to you the problem Judas had. And verse 33 through 35 is going to reveal the problem that Peter had. So we're going to see that unfold. So let's go to verse 31, and then we'll work our way back to Judas. Remember, Jesus has just come back to the table, and he is sitting there, and he has mentioned that someone amongst them is going to betray him. And Jesus has said this before. In John chapter 6, we were reading at the table this morning. Don was reading from John chapter 6. And at the end of that, Jesus said, Have I not chosen you? And yet one of you is the devil. One of you will betray me. He's been calling this from the very beginning. And so um, Jesus is back at the table. He mentions that to the disciples that one is going to betray. And there's sort of a, a hustle about it. And they're wondering what, who it's going to be. And John leans over and asks Jesus, who's it going to be? And then Jesus dips the bread and gives it to Judas and tells him to leave. But nobody really knows. And then Judas leaves. And John, being the poet that he is, in verse 30, is speaking not just of the time of the day, when he says it was night. John is your emotional apostle. He is the poet. He's the one who looks for analogy and symbolism and metaphor. And when he says it was night, he's speaking directly of what Jesus would later say in the garden when he says, this is your hour, the power of darkness, but you have one hour. That's it. It was night. And so Jesus says this after Judas has left. And what he says to Judas was, what you're going to do, go do it quickly. So the morsel of bread given to Judas, and then Judas leaving, seals the deal on what's going to take place that night. And so you get in verse 31 an emphatic, when he had gone out. 
Some of you may have now in there. It's very emphatic. There's a separation between Judas sealing the deal, knowing what he's going to do, betray Jesus, and now Jesus has something to tell you. Listen to verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Did you get that? (laughs) Jesus gives us sort of a glorified uh, riddle, so to speak. Kind of difficult to understand. It's a tongue twister of glory. Remember we talked about a few weeks ago from Psalm 24 what the word glory really means. It's one of those really difficult words. And so if you can replace the word glory or glorify in this text with something that you can maybe readily understand, it might open up for you. And so the word glory, really what he's trying to get at is ultimate reality. What is real? What is true? To be glorified then is to have the reality of Jesus finally known. Does that make sense? So Jesus is saying, now is the time. The Son of Man is going to be glorified, meaning the reality of who He is, the Savior, the Christ, the Son of God who has come to seek and save the lost, to redeem, to sacrificially lay His life down, that reality of who He is, which many people don't know, has now come. The Son of Man is going to be glorified. The cross was going to be His glory because not because it was going to bring him fame in that moment, but because it was going to declare the majesty of who he was. So when Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified, God is going to be glorified in him, and if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. He's speaking of the mutual glorification, the display through the magnificent power of God, who they really are, our Savior. And so the ultimate reality of Jesus was about to be shown on the cross. He was a suffering servant, a king who came to bring a supernatural spiritual kingdom that liberated not just prisoners bound by chains, but bound by sin. And that's who Jesus was. And so here's where we get to Judas's problem. Are you with me so far? Here's where we're going to get to Judas's problem. You see, Judas grew up like every other normal Jewish boy in that day and age. Um, He read the scriptures, went to school, and knew the common interpretation of all of the prophecies of the Messiah. What was Judas expecting when the Messiah was coming? The kingdom was now going to be restored to Israel. Jerusalem was now going to become the center of the world. Now the kingdom was going to come back to the line of David, and we would have a king who would restore and get rid of the Roman dominance, forget the Greeks, forget the Persians. Now, finally, the Messiah is going to come, and we're going to have a kingdom reestablished in Israel to dominate the entire world. That's what everybody was expecting. Everyone. When they thought of Messiah, they thought of king restoring the rule, because they had not had a king since they came back from captivity. They had not had a king yet. So nearly 500 years of no king. And so word on the street is that the Messiah has come and Judas jumps on board. He's in. You mean the Messiah is here? Remember in John 1, that's what Andrew said. Hey, come with me. We found the Messiah. And so Judas jumps on board. The Messiah is here. The kingdom is about to be restored. And so Judas is brought in and he must have been a trustworthy, sort of smart, astute kind of guy. He was chosen to be the treasurer 
amongst the group. That must say something about what the people thought of him. It's interesting, Matthew wasn't chosen, right? The guy who was in finance, the guy that handled money, you know, knew how to deal with things. Why did they pick Matthew to be the treasurer? They picked the guy that they could trust, Judas. He must have been pretty smart, pretty political, maneuvered himself well. And he was chosen then to be the treasurer. And things with Jesus are going well for the first year. Imagine what he's seeing for a year. Lame walking, people being healed, uh, 5,000 being fed, the woman at the well being spoken to about things being different. And so for about a year, what Judas is seeing is, this guy's the real deal. Power, wonder, signs, miracles. Jesus the Christ must be the, Jesus must be the Messiah. He's going to restore the kingdom. But in year two and in year three, things start to change with Jesus. He starts whispering about dying. A sacrificial death like a lamb. Strange, right? How's a king going to die? And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts having serious problems with the leaders of the Jews. And I think that tipped Judas off. And Judas began to hedge his bet about who this Messiah really was. He's the Messiah, right? The king. Yet he's talking about dying, and he doesn't get along with one of the religious leaders. I don't really know if he's the Messiah. And so from that point forward, Judas is not convinced anymore. And so he trades him. That's what the word betray means. He traded Jesus. He exchanged Jesus to continue to search for what Judas always wanted. Power. Kingdom. Judas wanted a seat at the important table. Ironic, isn't it? He had a seat at the table. The most important table you could ever imagine. And the seat that he had in the upper room was very important. Um, you, have, you ever seen uh, the, the Last Supper painting? That's really not how it was. You know, one long table where everybody's like staring at the photographer and no one's looking at each other. That's not how they did dinner then. It was in a U-shape, okay? And the, the guy that was hosting the dinner would sit in the middle of the center of the U and he would have one on his right and one on his left. And then there were probably five apostles down the right and five apostles down the left. And then Jesus with two. And do you know who was next to him in the seat of honor? On his right was John. But on his left, who was it? Judas. He had a seat at the table. The most honored position. But what he wanted was a seat at the politically powerful table. And so Judas traded Jesus to continue to pursue power. So why didn't Judas connect with Jesus? What does that mean to you? How do we make sense of this? How do we tie in Judas' story with your life and my life? What made it, what made it a problem for Judas to attach to Jesus? Let me give you this. You cannot form a healthy attachment with someone you don't really know. You will not attach to somebody in a healthy, positive way if you don't actually know them. You see, Judas didn't know Jesus. Judas had formed a caricature of Jesus, a, an image of Jesus that he had put onto Jesus, that he wanted Jesus to be. And so to this caricature of Jesus, Judas brought all of his hopes that Israel would now be the king of the, or rule the world again. Judas brought his hopes to Jesus, this form of Jesus. And when Jesus no longer was delivering on the hope that Judas had, he traded him, he exchanged him. 
Do you see? Why couldn't Judas be attached to Jesus? He didn't know who he was. And he didn't accept who he was. And this has plagued disciples ever since. What do you think of Jesus? I know that's kind of generic, but you've got to really take some time to meditate on that. If any of this will ever help you. I mean, this is a sermon, you'll listen to it, we'll leave. But if this is ever going to help you, you've got to, in the quiet moments of your own life, think, what do I think about Jesus? Who is he? Because you will not form an attachment to Christ if you really don't know who he is. You see, there are two common ways that we limit the idea of Jesus, and they show up in every form of life. We've talked about this with the way that we distort the gospel. We have ends of a spectrum. Remember this? We have what you would call on one side like legalism or conservatism or morality on this side. And on the other side, you have what's called license or, or uh, maybe antinomianism is the fancy word for without law. Or you might say relativism, loose. And most people err in understanding Jesus on one of those ends of the spectrum. Here's a good way to test yourself. The story of John chapter 8 when Jesus um, met with the, adulter- uh, the, the woman caught in adultery. What is the most important thing you can learn in that story. What would you say? And your initial reaction, you got to understand, we all will err on one side or the other of that spectrum. And Jesus has to lift us off that spectrum, but you've got to know your own heart. If I asked you what's the most important thing that you have to learn about the story of the woman caught in adultery, what would you say? Would you say that Jesus told her, don't sin anymore? Is it Was that the most important thing? Or would you say, wow, even the law said to condemn her, but Jesus didn't. We don't need the law. Do you see? Is is that the most important? Or would you say the most important thing is, ha, he got those religious snobs. What's the most important lesson? You see, the one that you pick is understandable and it's true, but Jesus isn't just one of those. He's all of those. He's the most complex figure the world has ever known. That's why certain movies resonate with you, and certain ones are funny, but you don't remember them. Think of some of your favorite movies. Uh, I can tell you one of mine is Shawshank Redemption. You guys ever seen that movie? I love that movie. You know why I love that movie? Because I just don't know about Andy. Is he a good guy? Is he not? And he makes you think, right? What makes that movie connect with you so deeply is that he's complex. You don't know if he's good or not. He has these qualities that are so interesting, yet you just are not sure about him. You see, Jesus is so complex. And the moment you minimize him to the things that you just want him to be, like the guy that forgives all the sins so I don't have to worry about it, or the guy that nabs all those religious snobs so I can join on his team, or the guy that says, don't sin anymore so you can be morally better than people, if that's the Jesus you want, he's all of that. He's complex. And you got to think through this. The best way for you to answer the question of what do you think of Jesus or who is he is this. What do you find yourself expecting of Jesus? Day to day. Tomorrow's Monday, then Tuesday, then Wednesday. You're a Christian. You wear his name. What do you expect out of him in your relationship with him? What do you expect? And when you identify what you expect out of Jesus, you'll get an idea of what you really think about Jesus. Let me give you a few examples. Do you expect from Jesus to help you escape from punishment in hell? If that's what you expect out of him, if that's what you think of him, that, that we just hang on to this guy called Jesus, and when it comes to the end of my time, I'll escape from punishment. What you'll have out of Jesus is a distant sacrifice that you have to appease on occasion. That's what you'll have. 
Do you expect him just to fix all of your life problems? Every problem you have, marriage, kids, job, can't pay my house bill. What, do you just expect him to fix your problems? If that's all you expect out of Jesus, what you'll have is a part-time therapist and a part-time genie, and you'll be full-time frustrated. That's what you'll have. Do you expect him just to be the guy that gave you the right religion that proves everybody else is wrong? Then all he is is the father of your ideology? And here's the problem with that. If all Jesus is, is the father of your religious ideology, he's forgettable and replaceable. Don't believe me, buy into a political ideology and see how quickly we move candidates in and out. Because what we buy into is the ideology and not the person. If that's all Jesus is, do you see what I mean? What do you expect from him? But what if you expected from him, him, him? The connection that your heart's always wanted, the love that you know that you've always needed. And what you'll find is a person that is closer than any brother could ever be. And a nearness to him, the intimacy of his love, will not just constrain the behavior of your life, but melt your heart into his and transform you. And so what happens when that is, is that heaven no longer is just an escape from hell or a place without your problems or the realization of your separation from those people who are bad, but heaven actually becomes the thing that you long for because you know in heaven is where you dwell with him. Him. You see, Judas missed it because he missed who Jesus was. When confronted with who Jesus was and what Jesus was about, Judas never evaluated his desires. He never checked his passions or his hope. He could never be attached to Christ because he didn't know who Christ was and didn't know what he was offering. He wanted something other than the real Christ, and so he couldn't be attached to Jesus. Even in the end, look who Judas ran back to when he was convicted in his heart. Where did Judas run to? The chief priests. Why didn't he run to Jesus? Because he still, at the end of his life, had his hope bound up in something other than Christ. And so he ran back to where his hope was. Here's what I suggest to you. If you're frustrated in your, relation, in your connection to Christ, you ought to check this. This may not be your area, but you really ought to check this. Do you really understand, or are you thinking about, are you learning who Jesus really is, independent of you, or are you just casting onto him your hopes and your vision for who you want him to be? you got to check that. That could be a major source of frustration in your relationship to Christ. Let me give you one more. What about Peter? Verses 30, uh, 33, listen to this. He says, little children, yet a little while while I'm with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, listen carefully. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And in that statement, you'll find the problem Peter had. Peter couldn't accept this statement. Jesus said, hey, where I'm going to go here in just a moment, you cannot come. That cannot just infuriated Peter. He just couldn't hear the words cannot. And so Peter couldn't accept this. So Jesus said it again to help clarify. He said again in verse 30, uh, I think it's verse 30. <clears throat> Six, Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. But afterward, you can, Peter. He's trying to appease Peter here, saying, listen, I get your passion, but right now you can't go with me because where I'm going, you can't handle it. 
but afterwards you can follow me. And listen to what Peter says. He says, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. So what's Peter's problem? What made Peter have a hiccup in his relationship with Christ that night? Why did he face the challenge of connecting to Christ? It's very subtle, but if you listen to what Peter and Jesus are saying, I think you'll catch it. Let me summarize it this way. You cannot form an attachment to someone you don't really need. And what Jesus was saying is where I'm going, you can't come right now. What I have to do for you, Peter, you can't do for yourself. And Peter says, why can't I go? I'll die for you. Peter wasn't realizing that he needed Jesus. And you cannot really form a close, healthy attachment with somebody that you have no need for. Does that make sense? And that's what Peter was missing. And so Judas missed who Jesus was. Peter missed letting Jesus be who he was. Peter knew he was Lord in Christ. He called him that all the time, but he wouldn't let him be his Lord in Christ. He couldn't accept the you can't. When Jesus said to Peter, you cannot, Peter couldn't accept it. And so a quick, good question for our reflection is, how do we do with that, que- that statement, you cannot? You cannot. How do you do with the thought that you cannot save yourself? You cannot fix yourself. You cannot redeem yourself. You cannot satisfy yourself. You cannot fulfill yourself. How do you do with that statement? Do you buck against it? Do you maybe try to maneuver around it? Do you try to find other things to solve it? Do you ignore it? Or in the face of that statement from Jesus, when he says, you can not, I have to, what do you do with that thought? What Peter did was this, why can't I? And what Peter was speaking out of was self-generated offering. And this is the problem that all humanity at some time will face. It's solving our issues, our problem of sin within ourselves. Peter wanted to save the day. No, Jesus, you're not going to die. Peter wanted to save Jesus. I'll lay down my life for you. But what Peter really wanted to save was himself. He didn't want Jesus to die. He didn't want to lose his friend. And so in his statement, I'll lay down my life for you, it sounds noble and it sounds considerate, but what Peter was really doing was saying, listen, I don't want to live life with you, so I'll lay down my life for you. I don't want you to die. He was trying to save himself. And so here's how you can tell if you're trying from your own power and your own reserve to save yourself. Let me give you a couple. The first thing you do, like Peter did, is you ante up with promises, offerings, vows, and commitments to Jesus over and over. Peter said, I'll lay down my life for you. I will. He was making a promise. Would Peter do it? He didn't live up to that promise, did he? The moment that promise got inconvenient, he bailed on it. But what Peter was trying to do was generate out of himself the ability to save the situation or save himself. And that's how you can tell that you're oftentimes trying to save yourself on your own powers when you're constantly are anteing up your own promises and offerings and vows and commitments. How often have you promised, today's the day I'll read more, I'll pray more, I'll serve more, I'll fellowship more, I'll do more. This year, this month, this day, this hour, and the moment it becomes inconvenient, we bail, and then we, like Peter, see the face of Jesus and weep about ourselves. You ever been in that cycle? That cycle is us trying to save ourselves 
without being attached to Jesus. And you have to hear, you cannot. You cannot. Where I'm going, you cannot. And all those vows and commitments and all that that we're trying to generate inside of ourselves is to make ourselves feel better. And what Jesus is saying is where I went, you couldn't go. I went there for you already. Here's the second way that you'll know that you are trying to save yourself on your own power. You experience frequent burnout. Peter believed he could save himself, and when it didn't work, he almost quit. Do you remember in the end of John, Peter said to the rest of the guys, hey, I'm going fishing, and he was out in the boat, and it almost looked like he was just going to give up. He was done. He was burnt out. He was exhausted. He almost quit. Do you ever experience in your relationship with Christ the deep feeling of exhaustion? Like you need space from him? Like he's the needy boyfriend or girlfriend that you just need a break from, that is just over the top, that is asking for too much, that is just clingy? You ever feel that way? You know, we can admit that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or you just want to zone out and be done with it for a while. That is evidence that we're generating from ourselves, our own well of resources to try to serve God, and we're burning out. Self-saving is not only impossible, hear me on this, it will prohibit you from ever having a real relationship with Christ. So long as you don't know that you need Him, you'll never attach to Him. So long as you think you can do it without Him, that you can fix things, you won't ever really be attached to Him. You will not attach yourself to someone you don't need, and you will not attach yourself to someone you don't trust. Until you understand your bankruptcy, you'll continue to offer from your own vault, not realizing that you're borrowing and it's not yours. Remember how Jesus said that we ought to love one another? Where does the resource come from? As I have loved you. Remember how we're told to forgive? As you have been forgiven. If you're generating out of yourself without resource of Christ, without the well, the fountain of life, you're going to burn out. And so what did Peter do? And here's what I'm going to leave you with what I think you should do, what I should do. When Judas realized his problem, that he wasn't connected to Christ, what did he do? He ran to the chief priest. He ran to where his hope was, and he tried to fix it. He tried to buy it back, give him the money back. Maybe Jesus won't die, and I can fix it. What did Jesus, what did Peter do? He didn't run to the chief priest. He ran to the tomb. Mary Magdalene came back very early that Sunday morning and said, Hey, I think the tomb's empty. And Peter, being a big muscular guy, took off running. There was another with him. We don't know who it was. And he was outrun by that guy. But that guy didn't go into the tomb. Peter comes running, just barreling, you know, like no inhibition at all. And he just plows into the tomb. And he's looking around and Jesus is not there. Peter ran to the tomb. The place where Paul tells us that we can actually know we're justified. Do you know how we know that God accepted what Jesus did? Because he didn't leave him in the, in the tomb. He raised him. That's how you know. The tomb is a symbol of new life, new hope, new beginnings, and a new source of power. He was raised from the dead by the Spirit of God, by power, Paul said. The tomb represents the only real victory and the only real hope that you can ever have. Any other hope you may have of Jesus pales in comparison to Him raising from the dead and saying, Sinner, you're forgiven. And it's because I went where you could not go, and now you can follow me. 
If you're trying to follow him with, by going where he went, it won't work. You need to let him go where he went, see what he did for you, and follow him. You'll be attached to one that you need, and you'll be attached to one that you know. And I want you to learn who Jesus really is the rest of your life and realize day by day that we constantly need him. And when you know that, you'll form a deep abiding attachment, not just to some idea, but to a man named Jesus Christ. Would you let us help you tonight? You can come as we stand and sing. Standing alone.